We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. What does the title mean for this story? Was it written just as a potboiler? That and more. Let's break this one down for the annual Faulkner in August. Read. we're talking sanctuary today. Time to get paid for the sanctuary. 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 <laughs> Welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. And I am not Popeye Crypto. If you are new to these parts, we take a conversational approach to the literature that we read. If you're down for that, make sure you hit that subscribe button to join us on the journey. And as always, we start off with publication information. This one's an interesting, although published in February of 1931, this one has a very sordid history of what was going on in the world with Faulkner personally and the world. Let's break down this publication because there's a lot here. He was writing furiously through this period as he unleashes as they lay dying the sound and the fury light in August in Sanctuary. But it wasn't all roses, as Crypto mentioned earlier. He finished this in 1929. May 25th was written on the manuscript, but he had to kind of leave and come back to this. And it wasn't until the 1930s that he added the last chapter with Popeye. You know, we're not going to get into spoilers yet. But some people have commented how this last chapter doesn't feel like it necessarily fits or greatly changes our understanding of the rest of this novel. Now, anyone that has seen our Before You Read series on The Sound and the Fury and in Absalom Absalom know that his relationship with Hal Smith was very close, but it also involves some editing sometimes. And you may have seen when you're picking up these versions, this corrected text. What does corrected text mean? <laughs> well, in 1985, a bunch of scholars got together and said, um, okay, let's let's kind of figure out what was Faulkner's original intent and verbiage? Because Faulkner was very deliberate with how he represented internal monologue. And, and when scenes got to be more conflict-based, he changed his grammar. And it wasn't necessarily the correct grammar that we usually used in, in sentence prose today. But it was a stylistic choice. Same with dialect. And in this particular book, there was a lot of problems when it came to trying to get it published. So he had to change some things. So the corrected texts are the 1985 scholars going through his notes, going through his old notes, and trying to restore it to how William Faulkner actually wrote it, as opposed to some of the changes the editors demanded. I think it'd be interesting to go back and compare the two novels and do a whole separate video just on that and see what was maybe the intent and how has it altered our perception of maybe his meanings behind it. So in 1931, this novel is released in its edited fashion, and it puts Faulkner on the map. He said that he wanted to think about what would the average Mississippian want to read or be you know, captivated by, and he accomplished that. This book sold. And by selling this book, people want to read his other books. But is that all this book is? Is this just the Howard Cern of literature to make a quick buck? Or do we still see elements of Faulkner in Faulkner's writing? 
I almost feel like this is the the payday and the behind the scenes drama. I dare say it already this early feels a little bit better than the book itself. I love this stuff. This makes for <laughs> this makes good TV, right? As we say nowadays. This has been a very fun journey. Faulkner in August is always a wonderful yearly adventure. You know, we've got videos from from people out there like Brian, who's done really good comparisons about Ruby and Temple, and uh, you know, Roz. She put out some great videos of there about how cinematic this book is, and I think that's true. There are a lot of elements that draw you in visually, smell, taste, hearing, that aren't always there in Faulkner books. And that might actually be one of my normal criticisms is that Faulkner doesn't necessarily take advantage of all of the senses. He's very cognitive in the way that he writes. This is by far the most sensual, literally, <laughs> book that he has written, where you'll see that there's times where the word sound appears 86 times in this novel. For a 300-page book, that's a lot of talk about sound, with silence being used 13 times and silent, and silent being used 14 times. So you'll have characters that talk about there's this loud clamber as they run up and down the stairs and the dogs make the same sound, but then when they're scared and hiding in a room, suddenly the dogs are quiet and underneath the bed, and you get this atmosphere that's built up as a result. And you'll also notice there's things such as the color, gray, Gray shows up in the text 31 times, which is a lot as well, with basically being once every 10 pages. And I think that's a stylistic thing, too, where Faulkner loves comparing characters that are unfeeling or maybe distant as metallic and gray. Uh, and it also, also plays in with a the theme of this novel of them maybe being a little bit between good and evil. Gray is kind of that in-between, particularly as we enter kind of a Fifty Shades of Gray moment in this book. <laughs> I love how this book is unique from the others, that it does seem to focus more on world building than character building, although there are a lot of character moments here. It does feel like that he was trying to do something unique with this one, and the themes aren't his normal style, although he does touch a, a little bit on them here or there as we kind of talk about today. I did like that he was trying something new. I think there were a lot of misses, but there were a few hits as we went along with you know Popeye and, and Temple's journey. So I think for the structure for today's talk, we're going to do this spoiler-free chat here real quick, and then we're going to eventually move into kind of the spoiler discussion, and we'll warn you when we get there. And then at the end, we'll kind of talk about our personal reactions to this book, because I would say this isn't the norm. Like, showing this book to someone, I don't think this is like, hey, this is representative of what William Faulkner is and what he can do. This is so different from his other books. I would feel remiss if I were talking to someone about this book who has never read Faulkner, and I'm like, look, you got to understand, none of his other books are like this. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, speaking of looking at his other books, I think this is a perfect time to mention that this does have many of the other elements. You're going to have the N-bomb dropped. You're going to have violence on women here. There's a lot of, you know, graphic depictions of violence. And that isn't the norm, I think, for a lot. Some of it is the norm for a Faulkner novel, but not in its entirety. And this does kind of separate it from those other elements of that, that character building and that funniness that we see in a lot of other the Faulkner universe. Something that's a little bit strange as we work through this is I've noticed that there was really no consensus on why did he call this book Sanctuary? And when I looked it up, noun, place of refuge. Another meaning is bird sanctuary. And I was like, okay, well, is this maybe like a play on the words because like doves showed up like several times in this? There's a couple references to birds and what they meant to characters. I'm like, is that where he's going? But it felt very strange. And I got to say for me, 
What resonated the most for me with this book in terms of major themes is if you've ever been traveling through Europe, you've probably seen some churches. And on that, you've probably seen the word sanctum or sanctuary written somewhere on there. And it couldn't help but make me think of like that Latin word of holy sanctuary, the idea that one can't be violated, that it can't be perverted. And I feel like that's what the core of this novel gets to. And maybe that's why William Faulkner named this book Sanctuary, is that idea of good and evil and how does justice prevail when evil starts to pervade into our lives and what causes us to be evil and are we evil or are we good? All goes back to that gray commentary, too, about how he kind of layers in a lot of different meanings here. So I, I kind of want to explore that a little bit with you today here as well. But I do want to give one last warning. On top of your trigger warnings, I wanted to ask you, I noticed we were talking at one point about something that was happening in this book, and you mentioned something, and I said, hey, that hasn't been revealed yet. How, how do you know that? And you're like, well, hey, I, I looked up you know, a chapter summary of this because I wasn't 100% sure. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that's how you enjoy books that you want to do, you, you know, and you want to go through that, you can. But I do want to give this warning, and I'm curious if you would look at it differently now in the past, is I would strongly urge someone, if this is a first Faulkner read, do not look up chapter summaries. Go back, in my opinion, at the end of the book. And the reason for that is this is noir. This is crime detective, and even procedural and court proceedings at some point, where the idea is what happens is Faulkner completely drops context on you sometimes. And you'll hear people call that woman and you're like, what woman are we talking about? And it's all part of like this, this discovery that you're going on, not only as a character, but as like a reader too, you're learning with the character, some information that's being withheld from you. You are playing crime detective where you're trying to pull out information. And I think sometimes that's where a lot of value can exist where when you get that information prematurely, it's not wrong. It doesn't ruin the experience, but it definitely changes it where you don't get some more of those reveals that I think what happens when you when you when you stumble through the murk in a sense. Would you say that your experience with that um I guess how would you say your experience is with that with looking up chapter summaries while reading? Yeah, I would say that for me personally because we're talking about the Faulkner universe and all the different stories. If you're going to this one as your first read, Please just try to get through it without going through, as as Una said. Just try to read the book and then go back or watch our video, and maybe that'll help you. But regarding somebody that maybe is into the Faulkner universe and knows the novels, I think that for me, I understood his writing. I know how he writes. I was used to a stream of consciousness, and this book lacks a lot of that. It's very straightforward. And its narrative isn't as convoluted, per se, as some of the others. Would that be fair to say? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And so for me, I was thinking, what am I missing here? Because I was expecting something mm. more of a mystery, and I felt like I was missing out. And I was like, I need to get the the no, no. I need to be in the no so that I can enjoy the rest of this novel. And I, quote, spoiled it for myself. And although we've talked about what is a spoiler so many times here and that I don't really care about spoilers that much – but yeah, I feel like looking at those chapter things, it gave away a little bit to where it wasn't detrimental to my enjoyment of the story, but it is detrimental to the story itself, if that makes sense. So maybe that's just a warning for you is just be aware that sometimes you won't know what's happening. And when you do look at those chapter summaries, just be aware it's going to give you information that may not be revealed until literally the finer ch final chapter of this book. 
So just be aware that that could happen. And one thing is you may hear us with these trigger warnings about the, the massive violence and you look up a synopsis and you read a little too far into that and you're going to get some major plot points and it may immediately be a turnoff for you and you won't read the book at all. And I would hate for that to happen also because that, that happens sometimes people feel like, oh, I know what, how it ends. I don't need to read it. And that's not the case with Faulkner novels. It's the journey, not the ending that makes this enjoyable. So let's move into our spoiler chat here, because there's a lot to talk about with this novel. Despite being a self-proclaimed pot boiler, sometimes Faulkner is Faulkner, you know, weaving in these, these elements of how he uses word choice with the gray and with the, the sound and how that can really emulate the feelings of the characters at the time, too. It's strong writing in some regards, and in some ways that, you know, when he doesn't, isn't as experimental with his other ways, maybe some of those effects don't play out as well in this novel, perhaps. Let's talk about the idea of justice and evil. Okay, justice and evil. The lawyer meeting Popeye in the beginning, right? You have the symbol of justice and good, in a sense, with the lawyer meeting this <laughs> dark, <laughs> ominous figure, I guess, kind of in a sense, and Popeye over there. And he Arguably, pulls out the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, pulls out, he pulls out his gun. Lawyer pulls out his book, and it's like, okay, we got Chekhov's gun and Chekhov's book. Like, they better both open those things, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's oh, a hero's good. journey, right? The lawyer is leaving his current world entering into this other world, entering into the dirty, dilapidated, you know, plantation moonshine business where we see uh, hijinks doesn't sound like the right word, but you, you've got an adventure that's about to happen is, is what you feel like when you enter into this world. Yeah, I, I definitely see it from the, the this point, but I also think that this could also be not the hero's journey, but the villain's journey. He's described so many times as a gray character with these different uh, adjectives and that maybe he isn't pure evil, so it isn't so much justice versus evil, that, that Popeye is a lot more complicated like we are. And that's what Faulkner's writing about at the time period for the Mississippians and the American people, that we are complicated characters. Yeah, he's got that quote that the only story worth writing about is the conflict of the human heart or something along those lines. I think that's maybe that last chapter with Popeye's origin story is what is most shocking to people. Because to your point through the whole story, there's even parts where he is described as black and, and muddy around his boots and his ankles and stuff like that. He is this non-backstoried character of evil throughout most of the story. And then you get to the last chapter and you're like, oh, okay, I see some of the things that led to this. And I think that's Faulkner's point to, to what you're saying is we have to then to the point of not having information revealed until it's necessary, reevaluate what does evil mean? Is this something where he's corrupted and he became this way because of perhaps some circumstances? And is it choice that really matters for how we become good and evil and such in the story? We have a wonderful quote from Horace where he says, say what you want to, but there's a corruption about even looking upon evil, even by accident. And I think that's really telling, because how does Horace decide to fight evil? Does he become the prototypical hero where he rushes in with a gun and guns blazing, you know, shoots down the bad guys and grabs Temple and pulls her out of there? No, no, that, that's not where we're going with this. He's a lawyer. He's going to use the law. His form of justice, perhaps to maybe some points that Brian and some others have talked about in our group, is that the law is what will determine what's good and what's evil. And how does that work out for him? 
Not too well. <laughs> well, particularly in the South, where there's a much stronger sense of vigilante justice, right? Like what actually comes to get Goodwin is an angry mob at the end, right? And you hear about how people will use words and use excuses to enact these mobs and use the women like Southern Bells as excuses to, we got to protect the women, right? And there's that terrifying quote, we got to protect our girls, might need them ourselves might need them good lord what, what do you mean you need them for something like that is terrifying of of what they're going to use women for and i think that's faulkner's point we're using excuses to go on this vigilante justice where it's not about serving justice it's about feeling good about punishing what you think is evil and i think that's what leaves horace so disillusioned at the end is he thought justice came from the law and that the law would come down on evil and conquer and vanquish it. And that's not what happens at all. And I think that breaks him as a character. Agreed. I think one of the other major themes this kind of brings up with the idea of, of evil and the legal system is a theme that he kind of on, is kind of another theme that he embeds underneath this. And that's that I think Faulkner was trying maybe for my interpretation that it's this, financial division or, you know, American capitalism that is becoming the root of evil in our country. And we see that the legal system fails. It's because of the greed of Popeye and others that are trying to move up the the wrong of life and try to better themselves and have more money and more of this. And I think that leads into Popeye also trying to fill the impotence of his life. You know, he can't, um, you know, perform and he's trying to fill it with other things and uh, to the detriment of all these other people around him he becomes that evil incarnate and he's not the only one in the story that kind of goes down that villainous path well impotence is is a physical thing for him but it's also kind of a theme for many of the characters who are unable to change their path in life horace being you know perfect example that we just talked about was unable to influence the theory and inaction of uh, of justice in the story I think part of the issue, too, is, is when it comes down to it, is, is the legal system is built upon people. It's not a perfect system. It is built upon people and conjecture and testimony. And along comes Temple, and she has the choice, right? Throughout this whole novel, it feels like choice was definitely in the question of, does Temple have a choice? Does Ruby, do any of the women in the story have a choice? Is there free will? Yeah. Do they have free will? And at the very end, it's very, I don't want to say poetic, but it's dramatic. Mm, dramatic, that, yeah. It's dramatic the way Temple makes a choice finally. And she chooses to convict and falsely testify, thus completely undermining the law's presence in delivering justice. Popeye wins. <laughs> oh, it's frustrating, I feel like. And I think this goes to how language informs us, right? We've talked before about linguistic relativity, right? And about that, the Sapir-Whorf theorem, where the idea is, you know, does language kind of control a little bit more of our thought processes than we think? Obviously, a little bit debunked. But we use language as weapons constantly, right? Like, you, you've talked before where you're like, oh, sorry, sorry, Una, I didn't have time. And I'm like, dude, you just got done telling me you just binged season three of Ozark. You can't tell me you didn't have time. <laughs> <laughs> I and actually we, didn't finish that season. 
<laughs> well, you didn't finish the homework assignment either, so. <laughs> yep, that's true. That's true. But F+. we use but we use language as this defense mechanism so often. And sometimes it's a way of avoiding choice, right? So if we say Temple finally took choice at that time, starting from the beginning, we see characters behave so peculiar when it comes to making decisions, right? You had Gavin who is constantly getting drunk, and right? And alcohol can be a way of, of avoiding decisions. It's a way of avoiding reality, in a sense. And you have Temple, who's presented with these ideas of should she run away, should she stay? And there's like this force that pulls her there. And I couldn't help but notice some of the, the language Faulkner uses in this novel is actually very hypercritical and specific. Let me, let me read you a quote here about from like the crash scene. She saw the tree blocking the road, but she only braced herself anew. It seemed to her to be the logical and disastrous end to the train of circumstances in which she had become involved. And I couldn't help but wonder what were some of the, the word choices here and why was he doing these things? Because if you remember, there's that point where she was going to run away from the house. And yeah. it says, in the hall... She whirled and ran. She ran right off the porch into the weeds and sped on. She ran to the road and down it for 50 yards in the darkness. Then, without a break, she whirled and ran back to the house and sprang onto the porch and crouched against the door just as someone came up the hall. Like, wait a minute. What do you mean she... It doesn't say she made a choice. It didn't say, oh, I'm worried about the dark or I'm fearful for this. She just whirls around. She's being flung into these choices. In the same way that that opening quote about the crash is she's on this train of choices that have already been made. It's this idea of fatalism and determinism. Her choices in life has already been made for her. So her, her life is a collision with fate. It's the idea that these decisions have already been made for her. And she's lived her whole life avoiding choices, right? Her daddy's a what? Yeah, her dad's a is a judge. Mm. Well, she, she reminds you a hundred times of that. <laughs> yeah, and her brothers My are some judge. some of some of them are lawyers, right? So what do, what yeah. do they do? Their jobs are literally to make decisions upon behalf of others. Temple, perhaps naive, reader centric, I don't know, but she is not making decisions through this whole point. Her whole life is on this collision course with fate. Because other people are making decisions for her, right? The judge, her lawyers who are ruling upon others. And also, hey, wait, we're back to justice. They're the ones, the good old boys, right? That are able to make decisions and to make laws in court. Now compare that to, you know, for example, Brian had in some of his videos with Ruby, where we don't maybe, maybe perhaps don't have as much sympathy for her, but she's in a similar situation. Why? Does one of these characters have more, more impact, more willpower in their life to make choices than the other well there's two things there real quick i want to talk about i want to go back real quick to the idea of these choices i felt every time there was like a choice made in the story it always seemed destructive it always seemed like it, that it, it was coming from that somebody else was going to make the choice that somebody else was going to suffer and popeye was going to make a choice Temple was going to suffer as a result, and he was going to gain pleasure from it. And it seemed that, that that was a repetition throughout the entire novel. And the idea of Ruby is that 
she is the one of sin. And I kind of got a little bit of Faulkner's religious elements in there as well, is that she was the one in sin because, you know, she has a common law marriage and that that's why she is being shunned because she doesn't fit up to the standards that everybody else has set in society. Okay, I I agree more with that second part, like, or unless I can relate to that statement more. I, I guess I didn't feel that she was in sin. I feel like all the characters in this book are in sin, I guess, technically, so maybe I don't disagree. <laughs> it's just well, the way maybe, that it, maybe, was, it was just the way it was phrased. You made it seem like there are others that are not in sin, in a sense, which every character has evil in this story, I think. Well, there's different rankings of sin for individuals. I think that if you're coming to this from a biblical standpoint there are levels of sin sure and the one that she is performing living with a man not married in the south in the 1930s 1920s that's going to be a big no-no compared to some of these other more forgivable sins white lies type sins well that's also i think a race commentary right since since sure oh yeah i mean when you were black in the South, you had much different privileges afforded to you, right? And Goodwin running the illegal moonshine business here, you know, they're not going to go traipsing around courtrooms and stuff like that to take care of things. And I don't even know if that was actually totally legal at that point in time uh, from a from a Jim Crow perspective. But I think, to, to me, I don't think the commentary was so much on, I don't even think that was a choice. I think that was like a social commentary for me on that one. Because yeah, sure. I mean, with the bootlegging and everything, that could be seen as that. It's just the idea that they're living a more chivalrous life, and she's living this sinful life out of wedlock. For me, well, that, that's how it kind of struck me. For sure, I think a lot of the characters look down upon her, right? And I think, too, maybe some of these points is, why do we look down upon her? And she comes in Chapter 7, she has that brilliant little talk about all the choices that she's been able to make, Right. This is what I had to do to survive. And I think that's a key part to your point. Every Faulkner character has these desires to survive. And perhaps the decisions that some characters make with limited options lead them to <laughs> yeah. different decisions than perhaps someone that has a lot more options is one way to look at that. Right. But to your point, it is a lot about choice where Ruby made tons of decisions and she is telling Temple left and right about all the decisions that she made. And I couldn't help but notice during, during this chapter seven, which I thought was brilliant. It's like they talk, 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 talk. She turns the meat. Talk, 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 talk. She turns (laughs) the meat. It's kind of like the, so it goes talk, 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 talk. She turns the meat. And it's after like the fourth or fifth time, I'm like, what's going on here? And I realize that what Faulkner is doing, a very, I think, very hyper, hyper accurately, precision, whatever the term is here, that he is making sure that we're aware Ruby is making choices. She is having an impact on things. Because remember, Temple, she couldn't run away at this point in time when she is, you know, getting ready to go, like being told to go in the other room. Ruby's like, go in the other room. You're going to eat. She's like, I don't really want to. She's like, you's like you are going to go eat. And what's, what's <laughs> Temple do? She goes and eats, right? So yeah. once again, this character, Temple, throughout the whole story has no agency almost. She's just like flung along by fate, by men, by power. Everything pushes Temple except Temple's own will. Agreed. So I think it's this idea. This idea of evil is something that can corrupt us to that earlier quote that we talked about. And it's not until the very end we see what corrupted Popeye and how Popeye then thus corrupted Temple and Temple thus corrupted 
you know, corrupted that legal system. It's this idea of you don't even want to look upon evil because it, it can cause harm. And if you don't make a choice, you see how it infects people, I think is one of the main takeaways that I had. But one of the most powerful quotes for me too was on my, my copy, the corrected copy, <laughs> Horace on page 180, where it says, it's not a matter of choice, my dear. And I think that's the saddest part about this novel is how characters don't realize that sometimes they didn't even have that choice. And I think that's, you know, to Ruby's point earlier, is that there's times where I think she was trying to make choices and trying to make a difference. She's clearly one that was thinking she has free will to impact things. But to your point, perhaps, of the South living there, do you have as many options in a situation like that she's in? And I think, you know, when you look at, you know, my daddy's a judge, they're the ones with the power. They're the ones making decisions that maybe you don't have as much control in the situation as someone like Temple who could. So when Temple becomes corrupted and chooses evil and decides to pervert the sanctuary of justice in the story, you see how justice is misdealt. You see how justice isn't perfect in the law system. And you see, even in the law system, it's actually kind of funny to me. I don't know, maybe I wasn't supposed to laugh, but when Popeye got convicted of a murder that he did not commit, even though he did commit murder on that same night, just not that murder, it was kind of actually kind of humorous to me. I was like, wow, that really is messed up that he can just kind of get tossed into prison, jail, stuff like that. The fact that people can be burned that are totally innocent due to false testimony, due to people taking vigilante justice in their hands. And what's the way to combat that? The law. I don't, obviously not the law. <laughs> it definitely <laughs> failed us in this one. I think yeah. that's maybe, maybe that's the choice that we have to think about is, is what do you do when you see evil? Because if you get too close to it, can you become corrupted? And if you run away from it and you don't impact it and don't make a choice, then it just spreads. So what do you do to combat actual evil? Yeah, it's a great question, right? And I think it kind of brings it back to the name of the story, the sanctuary, sanctuary, sanctuary. And I keep thinking about that of a sanctuary is a place where you're supposed to hide from this evil and that you don't need to make a choice. It's just a place that makes you feel safe. And maybe the overall commentary, I, I don't know, I kind of my interpretation of it that Falcon was saying the South was a place of sanctuary and that that has changed because these people have corrupted it. And you still have a ruling class in the South at this time period. And it's the Great Depression and alcohol has been, you know, made demonized and, and is illegal. And no matter what these people do, they don't have the strength. They don't have the courage. They don't have the wherewithal to make a change and they just go along with these choices that are being made for them and to the detriment of themselves and their families and that the sanctuary has been broken for what they thought it was for themselves and there's a lot in there with economics and race and just the 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 history of the south as well and i think that Faulkner may have been trying to open up people's ideas of this brave new world as we move into, you know, the 1930s. I don't know. Uh, what did you think of this one? You know, whether he says it's a potboiler or not, I, I think there's clearly a case here to be made that Faulkner is still Faulkner. He still understands people. He understands the South. Writing these conflicts in, writing these realistic decisions that sometimes people make and it's horrific. We don't always go in guns blazing, trying to save the heroine. We don't always say the right thing. Sometimes we do lie out of fear 
right? Like with Goodwin, was he afraid of the bullet coming in through the window? I, I think that there's more realism to this when when we think about it, because the problem is, is sometimes when characters don't act according to the rules of fictionality, when they don't act like the heroes we expect them to be, it can be upsetting because sometimes that's what we read and we want to escape. But maybe sometimes literature is that mirror or that door to invite change into others. Is this the ultimate door, the ultimate mirror into the South? No. I, for some, <laughs> if it is, great. I, I don't think, not knowing who I'm talking to right now, I'm like, yo, you got to check this out if this is the one Faulkner book you're going to read. It's just so different from his other books. He didn't use, like, you know, when we talk about this idea of fate and free will, with Absalom, Absalom, and the Sound and the Fury, when he'd talk about fate, he'd layer in these Greek myths with Cassandra and, and all these ideas of comparing it to, to Hades and to Cerebus and stuff like that. You had a much more surface presentation here. And I think not layering in those things, which are so Faulknerian and, and so ingrained into his DNA, I don't think it, the, the plot moved along with the force that I've seen him write in other ways. This is now my ninth or tenth novel I've read by William Faulkner. And I got to wow. say, this, this might be lowest on the totem pole for me. Uh, I'm not saying it's a terrible novel. I'm not going to say all it is is a pot boiler when clearly there's a lot more here in it. But it clearly is not the tour de force that he achieved in some of his other works, which may be why it's so it's it's not written about as frequently in the academic circles. It's still written about. This is like the last big novel of his that that tends to find a lot of limelight. Um, but I don't think it deserves the attention that perhaps some of his other novels do. So for sure, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to rate this one. I, I, I don't usually rate Faulkner novels. I, I, I'm not saying this is terrible, don't read it, but there's a lot of trigger warnings. It's a lot more surface presentation. And I just don't think it held up or had the impact on me that maybe some of his other novels have. Yeah, I'm so conflicted on this one. I don't think I need to assign to a number. It's definitely my least favorite Faulkner novel so far. I will say that. It's not his typical novel. I feel like that a lot of critics and a lot of people that have ranked this one lower or been hypercritical about it saying that, this is not the traditional allegory that he has. It's not, it's just, it's, it's a collection of violence. It, it's hard to categorize. I think that it does a good job in a few spots, but I think that it is lackluster. And sometimes it does feel like he was writing for a paycheck. If you compare Faulkner Faulkner, that's fair. If you compare this book to others, I still think it's going to be better than other books because Faulkner is an amazing writer, and you can't you can't argue that this book is amazingly written. Um, the characters are very complex. He does some great world building here, and if you're used to reading him, then this would be an easier read technically than some of the other things like The Reavers or The Sound of the Fury. Uh, but definitely the lowest one. And I don't know if I ever want to revisit this novel, and that's saying something, because I definitely want to revisit some of his other works in the future. I'm ready to reread Reavers again. I, I really liked that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. We are actually, I think, queued up next is either we're going to redo our As I Lay Dying, because we never created a product out of that, and next summer we're doing the Summer of Snopes, the Snopes trilogy. We've got a playlist down below. I think this is our... Is this our 26th Faulkner video? We got to stop talking about him, but we can't. 
He's a great writer. I just don't think we're going to talk about this book too much from here on. So guys, if you are down for Faulkner uh, talks like this, hit that subscribe button. We post videos every Monday and Thursday and have plenty more planned ahead. Una out. Peace.